Hello and welcome to What Is My Podcast About, although this is a Wimpy Bite edition where we're going to be following up our trend of going through all of the JoJo Bizarre Adventure storyline. My name is Keith, and as always, I am joined by Peter Akerley. Hey! And Matthew Grace. Hello! So, we've finally got to, I think, one of the more famous uh, JoJo storylines. Not to say uh, Stardust Crusaders wasn't popular, but Diamond is Unbreakable, when I ask most people, this is where they kind of got introduced into JoJo. It was either this or Stardust Crusaders. That's fair. Uh, Yeah, this one was... I can see why people would, like, if you had a friend, you're like, oh, you gotta watch JoJo, watch it with me. This is what they would use to kind of introduce them to it. Yeah, I don't think any of the earlier seasons were a bad place to jump in, though. Oh, definitely not. And I think the big thing about uh, Diamond is Unbreakable and why it is so popular as it is, is ultimately this is the arc that fully establishes the whole concept of stands to like a quite the degree in the world, where the rest of them kind of like it was more about the story, like they had a goal and they're, the only thing they focus on is getting to that goal. And there's other side things that don't really matter aside from explaining a few things. But this one is the first big leap at explaining the world, I find. Yeah, that's fair. And because of that, this will be the baseline you'll need for almost everything JoJo going forward. Yeah, everything after this point, you will strongly, well, without having watched everything after this, the amount of world building that happens this one seems like it would be hugely beneficial to familiarize yourself with this one before watching any of the other stuff. Exactly. Also, that reason there is part of why I had such a hard time actually making myself sit down and go through the series. <laughs> because, as you said, this this season focuses mainly on the world building. Yeah. And how all the stands work and all that, which is quite interesting. I especially like how we get introduced to some stand users who don't even have control over their stands. Yeah, we get a bunch of rules about stands, and there's stand users that, up to this point, if you're a stand user, you're fighting something. And we have most of the characters that are stand users in this. Like, they just use it for their job, uh, as mentioned with the chef on episode 10, who literally just makes food with it. And uh, there's also uh, the fairy godmother, who her whole thing is just you know, cosmetics, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Because of all of that, to me, like, each episode, like, outside of the overlying uh, arc of this is how people have been getting stands, there's a mystery behind this whole bow and arrow type thing, and how that came to be. But outside of that, it's just something happens here, something happens there, something happens there. We get a few pieces of connected things sprinkled throughout, and there's a couple little arcs throughout the season. But uh, it didn't feel like it had a fully connected story to me. Like I, I can see where you're coming from. Did. I almost kind of argue the opposite, though, just because... This season and last season both felt very Monster of the Weeky. Like, yes, there was an overarching plot that they were kind of building up as it went on. I I liked the way this one handled it a little bit more just because of the fact that it kind of felt like it was doing a lot of world building. Whereas in my experience with fucking Stardust Crusaders, it was a lot of we're here, now we're here, now we're here. And we're not really discussing why... I mean, yes, we know why we're traveling to Egypt. It's to find Dio, but 
there wasn't really a lot of interconnectedness between individual episodes from my experience, but this one, because it all kind of took place in the same place and was all kind of developing the city of Morio or however you pronounce it, um, as it went along, I liked the way this one handled it a little bit better. Yeah, the thing with this one, and I feel like it could be a misconception or like the hardest part a lot of people have getting into this one is Josuke might be the Jojo of this arc, but he's not the main character. The town is actually the main character. Yeah. And that's kind of what the connective tissue between all of it is. So really, it's kind of almost like a lot of the story is a bunch of vignettes, but ultimately the whole premise of this story is who's making these stand users and why are these people kind of just disappearing in this town? Uh, they actually kind of hint at, and I don't know if you guys caught, but Kira does show up in the series quite a bit, not just his scenes where it's like you see the person just talking with a hand, but in the background of a lot of scenes, Kira's just there. He's just walking through the streets and it's a neat, neat little way of tying him through the whole series. Oh, yeah. I didn't actually notice that all that much. I'd have to go back and rewatch to look out for it. Yeah, that's I the thing about Kira. Him. He's supposed to be so like he wants a quiet life, as he keeps saying, so he blends into the background so well and it's a nice little setup to him. Yeah, I'm I recognized him, though, whenever he popped up, mainly because of all the memes about him on That's the internet. That's fair. <laughs> I, I suppose if you before, know he's the serial killer going into this, it's pretty obvious. Before I knew his character, I already knew, oh, this guy's Kira, and this is what he looks like. Okay. And he has that, a weird obsession with hands. That's fair. I had not, noti- uh, had not seen any of the Kira memes ahead of time, so I wasn't super aware of who the... Uh, character of Kira was ahead of time, so I wasn't looking out for him as he uh, came through. Yeah, and ultimately the story, it's again, a bunch of tiny vignettes that kind of focus around these whole concepts. Though, uh, I will say the story does come a lot more focused, especially in the back half, with the focusing on who the villain is. Whereas the first half is more so of finding the bow and arrow and trying to figure out who Red Hot Chili Pepper is. And they don't really do anything to further that because in the background, Jotaro is taking care of all the investigation stuff, really. Yeah, yeah, we're following Joseph K while Jotaro is doing a whole bunch of stuff in the background. So we don't see everything that's fucking happening. Uh, whereas in the second half where we're actually like hunting down Kira, it's a lot more... Uh, kind of focused yeah deals. like um in stardust crusaders sure it jumped around all over the place but it was going from one place to their destination and each enemy they fought or each stand user they encountered was a specific henchman to the main villain whereas uh, this one i liked how it was grounded in just the one place it made I guess you become more familiar with the place as each episode comes out. Yeah, you get the little but, segments of like, oh, this is the little hot spot that's, you know, rumored because of this incident, and it's the people of the town, and, you know, stand users yeah. being drawn to each other. Yeah, but then uh, all of the different stand users that pop up, they just because they weren't connected to, like, the main villain as they were back in uh, Stardust Crusaders, where they were all just kind of working for him. You never quite knew whether they were an actual villain or just some person doing their thing in their life. You never well, knew a... how much of a threat they actually were or how important they were to the story. 
That's another thing I kind of liked about this one, though, where, like, they're not constantly running into people who are working for the main bad. It's just they're running into people who live in the same city, and some of them are just fucking shitty people and have nothing to do with what they're actually dealing with. Oh, yeah. As a world-building device, I do enjoy that a lot because, hey, now there's these people, some of them, who don't even want to fight, who have stands. Yeah, and ultimately, the thing that kind of kicks off this story is... It's more so wrapping up some like loose ends from the whole uh, Dio incident in Stardust Crusaders of, okay, he got stand powers, but where did these stand powers really come from? And that kind of addresses it like, oh, there was these bow and arrows, and Dio gave one to uh, Okasu's uh, father, and then another one was given to uh, Kira's family. Yeah, and I will say right now, before we get much further, because of how... I guess I viewed this series. I watched the first probably three quarters of the series at times two speed because uh, I'm not really a fan of the pacing that they use and how slow they go through scenes. <laughs> That's fair. But um, once, once it started to focus on to the cure aspect, I found myself forgetting to change the speed and focusing more on the story because it became more interesting when like the whole Kira arc started to develop. Oh, definitely. Like Kira might be one of the best things about this arc, just like how interesting of a character in the whole cat and mouse game is. Yeah. I actually found Kira kind of super interesting to watch as the story kind of developed. So with kind of grounding the rules for stands in this world. Was there anything that you guys found interesting about this, such as like new aspects to it or rules that you didn't expect? Especially considering what happened in uh, the previous arc? Yeah. Um, uh, there was one point towards the end of the series, or end of the season, where they encounter some stand user who uh, it was one of the first stand users that they encountered who couldn't even control their stand. The dude who was living in the, uh, like the power line tower. Oh yeah, Superfly. Yeah, Superfly. Yeah. And how he was trapped there by his own stand. He couldn't even leave. Until yeah. Until someone else came in to take his place. Yeah, his stand and literally became to do was get away. Uh, literally a cage for whoever was there. There, there is a few yeah. other ones that kind of work independently like that too, though. Um, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but Cheap Trick. That's the one that if you stare at someone's back, kills you and then transfers. Oh right, yes. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, another example of a stand that is kind of independent from its user. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of stands that uh, didn't seem like they were the most fun thing to have. No. And that's not to say that other stands that did have controlling aspects weren't independent in their own sense. Uh, Red Hot Chili Pepper actually is independent from the user, but listens to him, uh, as we find out where it's not the stand user, but actually the stand itself that's doing all these interactions with the characters, and then it's kind of communicating for the master. Yeah. Or, uh, hell, uh, Echoes, which is one of the greatest things. Echoes was actually super fucking cool to see uh, how it worked and like how it developed and got like uh, almost like Super Saiyan forms where it just got more powerful as the season went on because there was more things they needed it to be able to do. Yeah, it starts off as just kind of like it makes sounds into like it makes sounds reality. Yeah. Then its third form is I make things heavier. (laughs) 
Now, to be fair, uh, uh, this didn't do really a good job of explaining it, uh, I find, in the anime as opposed to the manga. Its ability isn't specifically making things heavier. It's able to rearrange the letters on things to make it mean different things and apply effects. Sure. Okay. It doesn't get used well, I'll admit that fully, but it, it, the, yeah. the, the actual power that uh, Echoes 3 has is specifically that it can take words and stuff and rearrange them. So think of it how it was able to make sounds before. Well, it's able to influence those words of the sounds to then change the aspects, and that's mm -hmm. how he's able to make things heavy. And um, another issue I had with one particular stand was uh, probably one of my favorite characters in this season, Rohan Kishibe, the uh, Rohan manga artist. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who could go into books? Yes. Well, when... Well, he makes his... you a book. Uh, yeah. When he first introduces his stand, he says that in order to activate it, you have to see his manuscript. Because that's how he uh, traps... Uh, Koichi and the other kid with his stand at first, they look at his manuscript and they are compatible with it, as he said. But then afterwards, after that little two-episode arc introducing him, that rule just completely flew out the window. Well, it wasn't so much of them getting rid of the rule. Uh, another big thing that's introduced in this arc is the fact that stands grow with the person. And Rohan is a character actually grew as a person after that interaction, which allowed his stand to take a new form, kind of in the same way that uh, Koichi's uh, stand also evolves. Yeah. Just his was more so it grew more powerful because his uh, energy and, you know, personality became more better, yeah. I guess is the best way to put it. It's just yeah. in Rohan's case, they never actually mentioned that growth. Yeah. Well, he just kind of says it in passing and not so much it's a big thing. Yeah, and to be fair, we kind of already got a little bit of a stands can grow more powerful over time vibe from Stardust Crusaders because the main characters of that one, because we saw them so much, we saw their stands develop over time and start to do more and more impressive things. Yeah. It's just, this is the first time we're seeing it happen with side characters and told that it's explicitly a part of stands is over time if you develop mentally essentially your stand becomes more powerful so this was essentially just putting in writing what was an unwritten rule before yeah. and i do like how the villains were all trying to plan around jotaro's stand because like oh we can't deal with him he stops time oh yeah we yeah. heard from like a guy that he can stop time that's not the kind of shit we want to deal with it's definitely a fun aspect of this. It's like just acknowledging that, yeah, I guess Dio and Jotaro really have a really broken stand power. Yeah. Yeah. I also enjoy how like they started off this season with the like fight between Jotaro and Josuke. And Jotaro, like, after the fight's like, alright, so I managed to stop time for like two seconds. That's not bad. Good thing I am still able to do it after all this time. It's just like, alright, so yeah, he still has the ability. But he's definitely out of practice, which is why not every problem is just solved with that instantaneously. Yeah, and definitely the thing to say with it is Jotaro isn't at what he was at the end of Stardust. Like, at the end of Stardust, they were, like, battle-hardened because of the journey they went on together. But he's been yeah. living a good life. He actually, uh, it mentions he's, you know, going to university for marine biology. Yes. The other thing I love about Jotaro... Is that he still has the hair hat, but now his hat is white, but it still blends perfectly into his black hair, and it's just yep. 
that's something I have questions about, but I don't know if you have answers, Keith. Yeah. So while we're talking about this too, like I, I take notes as I watch through these series again, like revisiting them while we're getting ready to talk about the podcast. And I actually, I noted multiple times this, no, seriously, what the fuck is with Jotaro's hair? I could kind of accept it in fucking uh, Stardust Crusaders because it was the same color. So clearly there was just a part where the hat ended and the hair began. And I just chose to accept that fact. But now watching it happen with a white hat, I have so many more questions than I used to. Oh, I agree. If it was just a situation where, oh, there was a hole in the back of the hat and his hair is coming through. That's fine. But no, it fucking blends together. (laughs) Yeah. Even like... uh... I was kind of half hoping that in the first episode when fucking uh, Josuke punches Jotaro and like reforms his hat, that that was just going to be an excuse for the hat not to be a part of it anymore since it looks so weird. But nope, it, that's not what happens. You keep seeing that fucking hat. <laughs> maybe that maybe the hat actually fused with his hair at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's more believable than any other explanation I can think of. Uh, so another actually interesting thing to talk about with the stand itself. What did you guys think about the idea of being pierced by the arrow? Uh, the arrow more than once uh, also evolves the stand, not just uh, mental growth. That was intriguing, and it started to get me thinking that the arrow itself is well, since it creates stands, it's probably it's probably safe to con- or consider the idea that it is the progenitor of stands. Maybe it's a stand itself, and its power is to give stands. And it's probably sentient in its own mind. Oh yeah, it definitely mind. has some sort of sentience to it itself. Maybe, but at the same time, the way they explain the bow and arrow isn't so much that it creates stands, it's more so it pulls the power of creating stands out of people, so... Yeah. These are all people who had the inherent ability to make stands already, and it just awakens that ability inside them. And the reason so, uh, that that's actually explained in Stardust Crusaders, where it's explained that uh, Abdul actually got his powers before this whole thing happened, just naturally. Yeah, and similar to how other people like fucking Holly, when they try and force the... Uh, or not Holly, whatever... Uh, is Jotaro's mother's name Holly? Yeah, it's Holly. Right? Regardless, whatever. Jotaro's mom. Yeah, Jotaro's mom. She kind of has stand powers forced onto her, uh, but because she doesn't naturally have the ability to produce stands, that's why it starts kind of taking over her body. So, yeah. and even I imagine the, that's they even said with the arrow that uh, if someone who wasn't worthy of a stand got shot, they would just die. Yeah, so I imagine that's kind of what that means. Is it's not that they're like directly outright killed it could be a similar situation to what happened with holly where a stand develops but their body's incapable of supporting that yeah i will say uh with the arrow the one thing that i it's always bugged me and it's never really answered is the whole concept of if they're shot, shot if they're hit with the arrow and they die that means they didn't have a good stand power that like there's no compatibility with it but do they really have to die i mean has anybody ever tried just you know kind of pricking them with the arrow or like you know stabbing them in the leg or something it's, it's probably more we... along the lines of how the stand affected Holly in that the person just has no way of. I mean, to be fair, we don't know. We don't know for sure because everyone we see get shot with the arrow. It's through the fucking back of their skull. Yeah, it's the head or the, the head, the neck or the chest where the heart is. Yeah. So we don't see anyone who if it was a normal arrow they would survive the shot regardless of whether or not they developed a stand but yes i do assume that if they hit them in a way that they would normally survive 
it, the stand ends up killing them since they can't support a stand. Yeah, I was going to say, Matt had a good idea with that. And it could be something simple as we also kind of find out specifically from when Kira gets hit the second time by the arrow that the stands not just are manifesting uh, their mental power and like their personality into a physical form, but also takes into account what they need to survive. So it could be a situation where the arrow actually only works if it's a lethal attack. Yeah, that does kind of make sense. Um, yeah, which would explain why they explicitly go for, like, head, neck, and chest shots is because of the fact that they know it needs to be lethal in order to awaken the power if it can. Yeah, but also, uh, when Kira's father was carrying the arrow around looking for people to turn into allies, um... He wasn't just randomly finding and trying the arrow on people. He was letting the arrow guide him to people who were able to use stands. Oh yeah, I definitely think the arrow had some level of sentience. I just wanted to clarify that it's not creating stand powers, oh, yeah. it's awakening stand powers inside right. people who already had that ability. Yep. So, uh, another interesting thing to talk about, I guess, is what are your guys' thoughts on uh, Crazy Diamond? Uh... That's Josuke's stand, right? I don't have all yeah, the names. Yeah, that's Josuke's stand. I thought that was actually a really fucking cool power. The ability of everything that stand touches, he can like break down and remold in his own interests. In particular, I really like the way he beats... Uh, fuck, what's the... Najimi's? Uh, yeah, Keicho Nijimura. That's his name. Uh, the way he defeats him and bad company by allowing himself to get hit by rockets, but reforming the rockets to shoot back at fucking Nijimura. Like, he uses a lot of really clever ways of breaking down and recreating shit. Yeah, that's the thing, like, I literally don't catch when he's doing something the first time through. I'm like, oh, that's cool, I didn't even think of that. And the villain's like, oh shit, I forgot about that. (laughs) Yeah. It's the kind of power who, when you first hear about it, you don't think it's super powerful, but the ways in which he uses it, you're like, wow, that's actually really fucking impressive. Now, for me, it was a cool power and all, but just completely removed any sense of urgency from any scene that he was in. Yeah, the fact that he was able to bring people back to life with that power. Or not not back to life, but heal them. because Oh yeah, he sorry, he can't bring them back, back once they're dead, they're dead. But if people like fucking when uh, Keiichi, or Koichi was uh, on like death's door... Not dead, but dying, and he was able to like fully bring him back. Yeah. Well, that that's it, more of it's, it's a different type of tension where it's not so much they can't be saved or anyone can die. It's if he doesn't like he has to get to them within a certain time frame. Yeah. So it's a direness. And the fact that he can't use the power on himself means that you end up with situations where other people end up targeting him specifically because of the fact that they know he can heal the others. Yeah. So yeah, I would say it doesn't fully remove all of the threat, especially with some of the stands they have to fight, but it does the risk of death is actually a lot lower compared to other arcs. Yeah. In fact, uh, so, uh, for an example of some of the interesting ways that he ends up using that one as well, uh, the first fight actually, where he swallows the glove. Oh yeah. Or even when he punches his mother through the chest with like the broken glass and then catches the stand in the glass. Yeah, his fight against that first serial killer is like, uh, yeah, Angelo, is a lot of him uh, kind of showing off the cool things he can do with his stand. 
Yeah, and, and but yes, yeah, the glove that he swallows to catch him in his mouth is another very cool uh, example of that. Yeah, that's also an example of Angelo targeting him specifically because he knows that he can heal any wound. Yeah. And I think the way that Josuke thinks about fights really just highlights the fact that he is Joseph's son. Yeah. He's not, like, fucking super powerful physically. It's He's very smart when it comes to fights and knows how to kind of think tactically to turn situations to his advantage. Uh, so, mentioning the fact that he is uh, Joseph's son, what did you guys think of old man Joseph? I... Odd, to say the least. Yeah, his character develops in weird ways every time like, he comes back for a new series season. The amount of money he fucking spent on uh, the fucking invisible baby that he adopted—he's—he's he's a silly one. And to be fair, he didn't know the the correct translation of U.S. dollars to yen. Fair. Yeah, there was. Next to no reason for him to actually show up, other than he wanted to be there to help, despite how old he was. Yeah, I believe the uh, whole issue was, because he has Purple Hermit, which can locate anyone, but due to the nature of how many stand users were in Morio, he had to be there physically for it to work accurately. Yeah, there was too much interference if he tried to do it from a far way away. But even still, they didn't even rely on his power to locate stand users, they relied on the fact that stand users are just naturally drawn to each other. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of the fact that we don't need to find them, we just need to exist, and we will run into them eventually. Yeah, and you mentioned, too, the Invisible Baby, which ends up becoming a Shizuka Joe star. Yeah. Kind of figured as much when, uh, at the end, it was shown with old Jojo leaving with the Invisible Child. Yeah. Also, what do you guys think of Josuke? Uh, not just yeah, Josuke stealing his money at the end. That, that was kind of funny. <laughs> that was pretty fucking funny. <laughs> He's a good kid. Takes his wallet. <laughs> He's like, oh yeah, that photo. Yeah, I decided I want it back. <laughs> That's the thing. Like Josuke is just so good at hitting you with the unexpected. I find in this one compared to a lot of other JoJo's where you. For, for example, Joseph establishes so early on that he is like, oh, I, I knew what you were thinking, but never explains it, so it's just kind of like a magical power he has almost. Whereas Josuke kind of explains his thinking on things, but that just makes it something you kind of forget at the same time and get surprised by it in interesting ways. But, um, yeah. Whereas uh, for me, outside of a couple instances, mainly where he was first using his stance power and a couple instances like using broken glass and dried blood to attack Kira. Yeah, the Kira ones were really cool. Yeah, but aside from those, I was able to successfully guess what he was going to do in any situation, just because, like, when you take into consideration his stand's power and the things around him, it logically made sense at the time. Yeah. Makes sense. It's a little bit of a... Look at me, I'm so cool, I can predict the future, but yeah, I guess you are cool and uh, can't predict the future. (laughs) In the Powerline Tower thing, where the guy was using his stand to shoot parts of the steel beams at uh, Josuke, I was like, oh, well, Josuke's hitting them, so he's going to just send them right back at him. So did you guys end up having a favorite, I guess, arc specifically, or even like a stand storyline? 
My favorite stand, definitely Rohan's, but my favorite arc is the Kira arc. Uh, which one? The Finding Kira one or the uh, Who is Kira Now one? The Who is Kira Now. Okay, so the last one. Yeah. Yeah, because the two Kira arcs is the one where they know there's a serial killer, but they're trying to find out who the killer is, which uh, ultimately ends with the fight outside the tailor shop. And then the second part is, okay, who whose body is he in? I was a fan of the Who's Kira arc, just because I wasn't sure who Kira was, so it felt a lot like a mystery where I was trying to piece it together before the fucking characters in the show. Um, as for favorite stand, I actually really enjoyed the way Echoes worked, so Echoes would probably be my favorite stand. Even though it was a little bit fucking weird and wonky. <laughs> Yeah, Echoes is definitely one of the much uh, more elaborate stands, which in a sense, I guess, makes it a little harder to say it wasn't your favorite. Yeah. That being said, if... I also really enjoyed Bad Company, just like, from how fucking full of himself Nijimura was because of the fact that he had Bad Company and Impenetrable Defense, and how it wasn't even like a multi-episode him getting defeated, he was just fucking dunked on immediately after all that confidence. <laughs> Granted, that's pretty standard for JoJo enemies of them being overconfident, but it was pretty fun to watch it happen to uh, Nijimura with Bad Company. Because it does seem like something that is pretty fucking powerful, if you think about it. Okuyasu's stand. The hand? pretty cool, too. Yeah, the hand. Oh, yeah. But um, I'm kind of upset that he never got to use his stand all that much through the series. That's true, but he did, like, when he did use it, he had some really cool moments, like his fight with uh, Red Hot Chili Pepper uh, on the bite. Yeah. Uh, or yeah. even when he shows up at the end of the Kira fight and is able to just take out the bubbles, no problem. Yeah. Yeah, his was one of those ones where early on it seemed like it was very OP, and I was kind of worried that he was going to become the Jobro, because when he becomes the Jobro, having someone that powerful on your team is going to be kind of ridiculous, just because of the fact that, like, not only can he erase away physical objects, but the space between things. It's just like, that's insanely fucking powerful if you think about it. But, but you see, they balanced him in one very clear way. He's not very he smart. About it. He's very stupid, yes. Although <laughs> <laughs> he just fully admits it too. Like, after every fight where something bad happens, like, goes there, I was like, I'll admit, I'm not very smart. <laughs> yeah. like the Red Hot Chili Pepper climax. It's like, how did you know I was the. Uh... The bad guy. Uh, I was actually going to hit both of you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just turns out that I hit the right one first. Oh, fuck. Okuyasu is uh, pretty great. He's a very fun character because of his fucking stupidity. Oh, he's definitely a fun character. Uh, the thing that is with him, though, is for a lot of people in like the JoJo fandom, he's a very like mixed Jobro, where people either seem to love him or hate him, and there's not really a middle ground on him, oddly enough. That's fair. I was on the side where I love him. I don't know... Uh, I'm not going to say how that affects my rankings of him for Joe Bro, but he was very enjoyable for me to watch. I'll put it that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like He's not high on my tier list for Joe Bros, but he was enjoyable to a degree. A lot more safe. Or a lot more so than Koichi. 
And, and I guess uh, this kind of works too, where we're talking about uh, them introducing new stand things uh, and kind of the rules, but they also introduced something new into the JoJo universe now, and that is ghosts. Yeah, yeah. the undead is a thing in the form of ghosts. How, how did you guys feel about this? Uh, to be oh. fair, we already dealt with fucking vampires and zombies in the fucking phantom blood, so... If they have the supernatural things like the stands, then I'm fine with other supernatural things like ghosts being a thing. Yeah, and the, the beautiful thing about this too is it wasn't like an overbearing thing, like it did play a big part, because ultimately uh, Rainy is kind of like, I guess the driving force for the Kira arc, specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, she does play a big part, but it's not an overbearing part that it does a lot. It's kind of like, it sets up defeating, I guess, one stand, and then we get the great payoff at the end when Kira's defeated, where she's the one who actually finishes him off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I definitely enjoyed... Like... It didn't feel like an overbearing, this completely shatters my perception of the world. It was more so, this fits with what I understand of the world already, and the way they use it is interesting enough that I'm not going to complain. Yeah, and it also kind of fully is like, oh, well, guess what? Uh, We've had vampires and zombies before, so we had a baseline for this. Yeah. Yeah, it was no big jump to bring them into the series. Wasn't even really a little jump. It's like a step. Yes. A step in the wrong direction. Step in the Jojo's trash now. Oh no. What do you mean now? <laughs> uh, fair. <laughs> it's always been trash. Actually, uh, more of a question just for my own thought process to you guys. Do you guys have the uh, Morio radio thing stuck in your head now? I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that did not take long for it to happen to me. Yeah, and that's another thing. Like, I think Stardust Crusader had some really good musical cues, but Diamond's Unbreakable, I th- I can't think of, like, a bad song in it. I mean, even the fucking opener is just a fucking bop. Which one? There's three of them. Uh, the first uh, the first one. The silly, crazy, funky town or whatever it fucking was. <laughs> they, they all sound kind of demonic at times two speed. Not gonna lie. <laughs> Yeah, I got a very uh, Jet Set Radio vibe from just the sound mm-hmm. uh, setup. It, not just the sound, but also like the hyper-saturation of the colors in it as well. I definitely got a bit of a Jet Set Radio vibe from it. Yeah. If it was just done with uh, cel-shading art style, then it would have been 100% a Jet Set Radio. Anime. Yeah, I think it could be just... The other JoJo's up to this point, at least on the anime side of things, looked very much older in their style. Where this one kind of like... They had a more gritty kind of color palette. Yeah, where this one is definitely, it pops a lot more. And honestly, this is more of it getting into Araki's eye for art, I guess, is the best way to put it. Because Araki loves to use like like very interesting color palettes and things just pop out. And I think this is kind of like where he really got the hand on what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a very beautiful show. I'll put it that way. Yeah, uh, noisy bizarre. Uh, sorry, crazy noisy bizarre town is the opening. Crazy noisy bizarre town. That's what it was. Uh, Chase is the second song, which actually is probably my favorite of the three. 
And then Great Days is the one where, again, the final uh, opening theme of each JoJo, uh, since the uh, Stardust Crusaders hints at the final character's power, or at least uh, showcases it during the opening. And uh, we got the cool one of everything going in reverse. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you guys feel about uh, Kira starting off with two stand powers? It was, it seemed a little, well, at first it seems a little overpowered, but then you remember Dio and Jotaro's <laughs> stands. Where but then we remember people they're... stop fucking time. Yeah, yeah, you kind of need to give him multiple fucking powers to balance the scales a little bit and what's going on. But uh, even even still, the stopping time, it's more because their senses are so heightened and the reflexes of their stands are so powerful, it's more like they're moving at an accelerated rate compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, that's true. That's just how more I kind of pictured how their stands worked. Yeah. I guess ultimately the idea is that they're like precision speed-based stands, both of those. So the ultimate point of that is time freezing. The effect... The effect is frozen time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, and it kind of builds up to that, where they, as they develop, they get faster and faster and faster, and the kind of infinite limit of getting faster and faster is moving without time passing. Yeah. And uh, Kira's stand, when you think about it, it has all of the traits it needs for exactly what Kira needed to keep living and blending in and not standing out. Yeah, and that's kind of the idea we end up getting of stands aren't just cool powers that someone gets, it's a reflection of their needs and their personality. Yeah. Yeah. Because his first one is anything he touches becomes a bomb, which is quite simple, but surprisingly a lot more effective than you'd think. Yeah. And then, of course, the uh, bites the dust, which has no weaknesses. Has weaknesses. Uh, is a heat-seeking yeah. bomb. Of course. With yes. no weaknesses. Other than the weaknesses it has. Also, uh, some of the Josuke stuff is cool, but, man, Koichi, like, when he has his, like, click-on moments, uh, they're just the greatest things in this uh, series. Yeah, but then he has his moments where he's, like, the worst. <laughs> like, when they first encounter uh, Kira... Or track him down by his jacket button. And Jotaro is all... No, our top priority is getting out of here alive. Because he is... He doesn't want to be found. He is going to try to kill us with everything he can. But meanwhile... uh, Koichi's just there. Like, oh no, Jotaro thinks I'm not up to the task. I'm going to go against what this guy is planning and put both of us in danger to see if i can stop him to be fair though he has his click on moment after that when he has to solve the problem that he created and that's how he ends up uh, growing into developing act three yeah and let's yeah, not forget he... that jotaro also says that koichi is a very reliable person yeah but also like jotaro told him like Ten times in that scene. <laughs> so like, don't go after him. We're getting out of here. Put all of your focus on getting out of here safely. And every time, Koichi's just like, yeah, no. Koichi's also the center of my least favorite episode of this entire fucking season. 
which is uh, the one where he first developed Echoes, and they have the fight against the fucking con artist who has the lock power. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems like every one of these goddamn seasons has the episode where one of the good guys realizes that there's an evil character who takes advantage of them by convincing everyone else that he's a good guy. And no one fucking believes him. Like, it was the fucking baby in Stardust Crusaders. The fucking first episode of Battle... Or not Battle Tensies, Phantom Blood. When fucking... Goddamn Dio kills the dog and everyone thinks Dio's a good guy and Joseph's a shithead. Or Jonathan, not Joseph. It's just... Yeah, because Joseph is a shithead. Yeah, Joseph is a shithead. Jonathan's actually a good person who just got fucked over. (laughs) Um... But yeah, every one of these fucking seasons has the one episode where there's the bad guy who gets away with being bad because everyone thinks they're a good person. And it's just my least favorite fucking thing. And we, of course, get it in this. And it's a fucking con artist who convinces fucking uh, Koichi's mom to sell him his the deed to her home because Koichi accidentally stole his wallet, which is just some bullshit. Yeah, it, it, the family thing is a little excessive, but I love the fact that they do kind of subvert that when you think it's, oh, it's going to be Josuke and Okisu that's going to be tricked by it, but they immediately catch on. Yeah, that's a fake tooth. Yeah. Also, this isn't a cat, it's a stuffed animal with a blood pack in the bag, yeah. And we kind of also get a playoff of that one, too, where uh, the episode later, Rohan has Cheap Trick on his back, and Koichi's like, oh, you're just messing with me, and then he comes back, he's like, I, I kind of knew. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, I do want to speak about one of my favorite uh, episodes uh, in this one. Actually, we have to we have to do something else first before we get to this episode. Uh, so, really important question: Is he an alien or a stand user? Just by how bizarre he is, I've got to say alien. <laughs> yeah, I got to side with Matt. He definitely seems like more of an alien. Yeah, I because like the arrow found him as someone who would be suitable to have or use a stand. Yeah. But it couldn't even penetrate his skin. Yeah. Yeah, me uh Mikitaka is that's a debate that I feel like will live on in the storyline forever because we never get that answered in any capacity. Of course not. Why would we get that answer? But we have enough stuff on either end where we could arguably say he could be either one. Oh yeah. But we never see the spaceship. Never see the spaceship, never see the uh, gravity gun. But, uh. No, he just seems too. It's like too honest and open of a character. Yeah, especially for fucking the world that JoJo's built. Having someone that fucking forthright is, uh. Not human. Yeah. Especially where he has so many, like, stand like powers without, like, actually having a fucking stand. Well, to be fair, stands don't always have to have physical manifestations. Yeah. Yeah. And the only two abilities he has that we know of are, like, his really tough skin and his shape-shifting. Yeah. Which are, I don't know if you know this, Matt, not skills that humans have. Yeah, I know. Could be a powerful stand user, though. Could be a powerful stand user, which I'd be willing to believe... If it weren't for the fact that he's clearly an alien. And the reason I wanted to ask this question first is because I want to talk about one of my personal favorite storylines, uh, the Josuke versus Rohan gambling game. <laughs> I, was, uh, oh, I felt so bad for Rohan in that. 
I just love the whole concept of, like, they're playing the dice game, but, like, clearly uh, Mikitaka doesn't get it, so he keeps giving, like, perfect hands for the situation. Yep. And then Rohan's like, oh, we, oh, I'm gonna find it. I know you're cheating, and you have to cheat on this last hand. <laughs> and then he fucking stabs his own finger. <laughs> now we have stakes, Josuke! And he was right. Now they had stakes. No. Yeah, just, like, when Rohan goes off the deep end, it's just some of the best scenes in the series. And the I love just like the kind of like joke ending of this one where it's like the, all the fire trucks are showing up. And it's like oh no, this is gonna like you know ruin the whole thing because they're gonna find that that's the alien stand user inside the yeah. dice. And of course, an old person would say, oh, why are fire trucks showing up at this exact moment? It's like oh no, Rohan, your house is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. And I did like how that wasn't just a one-off gag for that arc, but the fact that his house did catch fire and suffer fire damage played a key factor in uh, progressing his side of the story. Yeah, that's why Cheap Trick shows up to fight him. Yeah. Well, that's why, yeah, he gets Cheap Trick on his back. Also, the fact that Ron can't just leave it alone with the guys like, please don't look at my back, so he traps him in his floor. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know if you know this, but uh, Rohan is actually, I don't know if it's came out yet, but he is getting a spin-off series. I have uh, heard that news. I was looking into Rohan a bit uh, after the, I finished the series, and I saw a bit about him getting a spin-off series. Interesting. So if you definitely do like the character, but like the series would just fell a little off for you, that might be a way to get back into the world, specifically for this arc of JoJo. It's certainly something I'm going to have to look yeah. into. Because that's a, I think that's the benefit of this arc in particular compared to other arcs, where it is so open-ended and it's more about the city than the characters. You could do, like spin off this part of JoJo specifically into so many different things. Yeah, like so many different characters could have their own fucking storyline just written about them. And then you set the entire fucking Rohan story in a different city, and then you have a spin off about that city, and then you get so many more spin offs to do. I like how uh, the final episode of the season ended off. And they're like, what? Rohan was caught for shoplifting? We gotta go see this. <laughs> He's definitely the person who would. He's so goddamn weird. Yeah. Got too obsessed about something he saw. But I love how, like, the characters, like, all feel like they're real people in a sense, too. Like, nothing feels like, uh, like, aside from, like, Mikitaka, I guess, nothing feels, like, absurdly over the top to the point, like, uh, the uh, Highway Star fight. Yeah. Where Rohan, yeah. like, makes the choice of, like, oh, Josuke, get out of here. He's going to kill you if you step in the room. And then Josuke's definitely like, oh, you think I'm going to do what you tell me to do? <laughs> yeah. And then it looks, it looks like they're going to have that heart-to-heart -heart at the end where it's like, oh, I guess we're friends now. But Rohan's like, fuck you, Josuke. How dare you not do what right. I say? I think this is why I hate you. Uh, so I think uh, the only thing I have personally left to talk about would be the final Kira fight. Yeah, that's fair. Or yeah. I guess I should say the, the specifics of like that final cycle of days, I guess. with uh... So how did you guys feel about the uh, Bites the Dust time loop? It, it, I enjoyed it. It makes me really nervous that every fucking season of... Uh... JoJo is now going to end with the final villain having fucking time fucky powers. It seemed... Yeah, like, it was an interesting concept, but it seemed way out there 
like a bomb that destroys time in a sense. Well, that's fair. Send time back. Although I would also say like. This seemed like the most scary villain stand power to date because of the fact that he could win without anyone ever knowing. Yeah. yeah. As even we saw with Rohan with, dying three fucking times. Even without him knowing, really. Yeah, because only the person who has Bites the Dust would know. But, uh, man, Hayato, MVP of those last few episodes. Yeah. He put everything together and then got killed and brought back. Somehow. Yeah. He fucking finds out who Kira is and then fucking just runs it down after that, essentially. <laughs> he was speedrunning the final day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because well, he does die because he does get killed by Kira. And then because Kira's power works a certain way, he needed Hayato to be alive to not be found out. And I'm not sure the method of that. And I don't think... Uh, Araki knows either, so that's why we kind of skip over that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But then uh, Josuke uh, ends up bringing him back, because he does explain it right there. He's like, he healed him at the exact moment of explosion, so he didn't actually die. Yeah. Yeah, it's like... Uh, it's a bomb set to detonate when those specific key phrases are mentioned and whoever mentions them are killed, and then Hayato is like killed, triggering the time destruction. Yeah, fe effectively, yeah. how it works is that bites the dust. Uh, it blows up on specific rules, and what it does is, with this loop, everything that happens at a certain time is always going to happen with this loop. That's why Hayato's face still opens up like a book at certain times and all that. Yeah. So as long as it's active everything will happen. That's kind of how he wins. So he has to deactivate it after everything's already happened to make it permanent. Yeah. Which is also the loophole of how the characters get out of all of them dying because of Hayato's plan. Yeah, and it's also the thing where once someone is blown up and then time sent backwards, they're like destined to blow up at that time again. Yeah, so it's not Killer Queen blowing them up again. It's them just blowing up because they blew up in one loop. Yeah, and now they're destined to fucking blow up. But it also means that fucking... Because they're destined to die to blowing up, Killer Queen will prevent them from dying from any other means than them blowing up, which is why he prevents Hayato from killing himself at some point. It's well, no, it's uh, a fucking weird power. Uh, so the reason that Killer Queen protects Hayato is not to prevent that. It's more so that Killer Queen is supposed to protect Hayato from everything. That's why, there's, uh, if you might have noticed the scene where uh, Kira is actually going to beat the shit out of Hayato, and then Killer Queen actually stops him. Right. Yeah. It's protecting the person that is the bomb, and Hayato is the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the backfire to that whole plan is the fact that he can only have one bomb active at a time. So okay. in order to make another bomb, he has to deactivate that first. I mean, you got to make it somewhat fair for the users to get yeah. out of it. Yeah. The other part is that. Yeah, Killer Queen will aggressively protect the person who the bomb is planted in, so... Yeah, the fact that he couldn't even kick the shit out of Hayato because of the fact that Killer Queen was protecting him. Yeah, there needed to be some balancing mechanics put into it, otherwise it was a uh, I-win-you-lose situation. Yeah, because yeah. if he could have used it any other way, he would have just, what, put, you know, bites the dust in himself, use it as normal, and then anytime someone gets close to him, I'm in your left eye, boom. Yeah. And then there's the uh, fun situation where they all come face to face with them. Uh, 
Oikyasu also has like his near death experience because he's dead, but then he's not because he decided I'm too stupid to die. Yeah. Mind you, it was a good moment. Yeah. It was a little touching. I enjoyed it. Uh, did you guys think that Kira won there in the fake out at the end, though? I definitely had a moment of realizing it before realizing he was uh, dead. Oh, I, I kind of figured that like he failed. I assumed when uh, he first triggered his ability where he thought he was going back in time, I assumed that just because of how events unfolded, it didn't activate properly. And so he wasn't like destroying time to go back. Like It was destroying himself or something. Yeah, he, well, effectively what ended up happening was uh, Koichi made his hand heavy, and then uh, Jotaro got close enough to beat the shit out of his hand so he couldn't trigger the bomb, and then stupid ambulance driver backed up. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, as mentioned before, we get the really cool scene of uh, him getting the shit beat out of him by the ghost street. Was like, that was fucking horrifying, like, to be honest. I've heard of this ghost street, you think you're gonna get me with this? Think again. And it's like, you think you've got me? I've had 15 years to plan this. You're not getting away. The thing I love the most about the Ghost Street situation is when uh, Koichi and uh, uh, Rohan are there for the first time and they're going out. And then Koichi hears from behind, it's okay to turn around. And he's like, okay, fine. And he looks. But then the way out of it is Rohan just writes, it's like, he didn't look. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he, writes, he writes in, oh, you can't look. Yeah. It's like, literally, you cannot see things. <laughs> You see, it works. It counts. It counts. It never happens. Like, he didn't look because he couldn't look. He's like, okay, we're out. I'll give you your vision back. There, now you can see things again. It was just one of those, like, what like what the fuck moments that I couldn't help but just laugh hard at when it happened. Yeah. Not because of the slaps to comedy, but the fact that his stand works in that way. Yeah. Like, his stand, as long as he's able to activate it on someone... It can essentially be the most powerful stand. Yeah. Because if he can activate it on someone, out of a few specific scenarios, he can make it so they can't attack him. Ever. Yeah. Kind of. Because it depends on the definition of attack. Because as we got with uh, Boys to Men, uh, the Rock, Paper, Scissors guy. Yeah, but that was also yeah. because he'd already absorbed part of uh, Rowan's stand power. Oh yeah, but before the Rock, Paper, Scissors game happened, he wrote that he couldn't attack him. But it wasn't that he was actively attacking Rohan, it was that mm. he was playing a Rock, Paper, Scissors game that happened to have a gambling aspect to it. So that's yeah. what, that's where the weakness of it is, is if Rohan doesn't word it in the right way, it can be worked around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, before we get into the last part where we start talking about our favorite stuff, or specifically our rankings, there's one other thing I want to talk about, uh, and that is the person who saved Josuke when he was younger. I think it was Josuke. So have you guys looked into this at all? No. Nope. I haven't. Okay. So as the story unfolds, it was just a random guy. That's how it turns out. It was never revealed to be Josuke, though people did suspect it was going to be Josuke and there was going to be some time fuckery. Yeah. So this is something you're probably going to start noticing in jo uh, JoJo stuff moving forward, is that Araki does set up things that he thinks are interesting, but based on how the story goes, he won't follow through on it. 
And the original plan from the sound of it was it was supposed to be Josuke who saves himself and inspires himself in a sense due to the fight with Kira. Yeah. But then he realized that there was a lot of like loopholes he'd have to jump through and he wouldn't be able to tell the story the way he wanted for that payoff. So ultimately it was defaulted to that it just happened to be a guy that saved Josuke when he was younger and it's, he's nothing more than the inspiration for Josuke of being a hero. Yes, yeah. And incidentally, because of the planning, has the same voice. <laughs> Josuke is really thorough about imitating this man. But what, what I can confirm is that nothing's ever suggested otherwise to what happened there. As of okay. the story going as it is, it, there's, you could still theorize that it was Josuke because he does confirm it either way. But kind of the accepted canon is that it's just a random guy. But honestly, you could believe in either way and just assume that okay. Josuke on an off-scene story saves him. Yeah. Yeah. Until some point and- where we get a spinoff in this town of Josuke and time shenanigans. Well, my favorite part about that is it creates the uh, looping logic that time travel fuckery always does, which is Josuke styles his hair after the man who saved his life. But the man who saved his life, if time travel is involved, is Josuke, which means Josuke is styling his hair after himself, which is where the fuck did the hairstyle come from in the first place then? I mean, to be fair, at the time that it's supposed to be taking place, because it's during the Dio fight that that happens, it's 88, I believe. Yeah, and that was a the you know the delinquent hairstyle of the time. Oh yeah, I know. It's just the whole logic of it is that he's inspired to do it because of the person who saved him, and he saw the hairstyle that the person had. And it's just if that is himself traveling back in time, not that the hairstyle came from nowhere, just the idea that he's inspired by himself, and the person who was inspired by him is inspired by it. To like make a reference to another thing. Um, it's, fucking... it's essentially, you're looking at a circle, a fully completed circle, and you're wondering where the original break is. Yeah. What's that British uh, TV show about the people who develop superpowers after a comet passes by? Misfits. Misfits, thank you. Uh, so yeah, in Misfits, there's the time traveling thing, and like at the end of the fourth season, one of the main characters travels back in time because he has to do everything the exact way it happened the first time around as a separate character. But he talks about how he has to go back in time and he has to buy a power from the power broker. And he's like, but I don't have the money to do that if I go back in time. And the power broker's like, oh, I remember when I sold my first power, it was that power. And I've held on to the money that I was paid for for the time I sold that first power. So I guess I could just give you that money since you're going to give it back to me soon anyways. And it's just like, where the fuck did that money come from then? <laughs> <laughs> if he was given it by the guy who he later goes back in time to give it to, it, it bugged me. But what well, that's specifically yeah, why I held on to it the whole time. It's literally stuck in that time loop. Yeah, that money exists, does not exist outside of that time loop, which means it was never minted. Anyways, fuck it. That's all I'm trying to say. Sometimes when you do time travel shit, stuff stops making sense. Yeah, that's the problem with time travel. Yeah. So yeah. uh, I guess with that, we're ready to do the part that makes people on the internet angry at us. Oh, absolutely. I'm yeah. looking forward to getting people very mad. Okay, so as always, we got the four categories where we're doing the rankings for. We have the JoJo, the Joe Bro, the Villain, and the Ark. Now for this uh, one, unlike the last one, it's uh, easy again to identify who the Joe Bro is, and it is Okaisu. Yep, absolutely. 
shall we start with Jojo, since that seems like the most logical one to start with? Sure. Uh, so I believe as of last standing, we all had Jotaro is our number one pick. So what is your guys' ranking now? I still have Jotaro as my number one pick, mm-hmm. but Josuke is now my second favorite Jojo. Okay, and uh, I have to ask, uh, did your Joseph ranking go down because of old uh, Joseph, or is Josuke just better? Uh, Josuke is just better in my mind. Um, I I won't deny that Joseph's behavior in this one uh, didn't help, but personally, I think even if I ignored Joseph's participation in this season, I would still probably put Josuke ahead of him. But he even said the line. He said, oh my god. Yeah, that didn't help, Keith. (laughs) I'm of the same mind as Peter, where uh, Josuke is my number two and Jotaro is still my number one. Joseph, he had his moment, and despite the fact that he made an appearance in this one, he was not the main Jojo to take into consideration, so all consideration of him is uh, null and void for his appearance in this season. Fair enough. So I guess that means we're all of agreement with JoJo's, because I also am the same way. Jotaro is my favorite JoJo still. Josuke is second, then Joseph, then Jonathan. And it just comes down to Josuke is definitely a more believable and like fun character that you can relate to. But if, if you're looking at like a hero character, it's Jotaro the whole way. Oh yeah, Jotaro 100% of the way. Okay, so next, let's go into Joe Bros. So, of course, uh, this is Okayasu. Yeah. Um, so, to go back into, uh, talk a little bit about what my kind of justification was in previous ones, uh, I kind of ranked them less so on how much I liked them and more so on how much they kind of assisted the Joe Sarah family and their different branches down the line so for me fucking uh oh god speedwagon has always been my top ranked joe bro um unfortunately speedwagon is still my top ranked joe bro but even though okayasu doesn't do much to actually help out the joe star family like he's cool the fact that he's so dumb and just fun to watch gave him huge bonus points in my book so Okay, Asu is now my second favorite Joe Bro in the season, in the series. And as for me, I've got to rank Okayasu at the bottom, just because he's just there. He contributes next to nothing. <laughs> but he's so fun, man! Yeah, but as a Joe Bro, he doesn't, in my mind, he doesn't fulfill the Joe Bro role. He doesn't even die. Permanently, it's I guess. That is, yeah. an, that is an important role for Joe Bros to have. <laughs> is they have to fight the Joseph at the beginning, and they have to die against the main villain so that the others are inspired to win. Okay, so if I'm correct, then that means both me and Matt still have Kakuane as our number one. Yep. And then uh, Speedwagon is Peter's number one. Yep. Uh, so just to make this simpler, because this is actually our most fucked up list of like no, no overlap really. Mine goes Kakuane, yeah. Speedwagon, Okayasu, and then Caesar. Peter goes Speedwagon, Okayasu, Kakuane, Caesar, and then finally we have Matt's for Kakuane, Caesar, Speedwagon, Okayasu. 
this is definitely the one where we have the most disagreement, and I think it's just because we all have different metrics by which we rank the JoJo or the Joe Bros. That's fair. But well, I mean, we have Kakuin shared with between me and Matt, and Speedwagon's in our top. Oh, well, I guess from two of us, top two, and then three on Matt. Yeah. yeah. Next, and so, okay, me and Keith both agree that Caesar's not great. <laughs> yeah, and Matt likes Caesar. It was bubbles. He used bubbles. <laughs> That was what his fucking power was. Oh, God. All right, so uh, the villain. So let's talk about Kira. Yeah, so Kira is definitely an interesting take on the villains up to this point where all of them were kind of like world domination-esque and Kira's just like, I just want to live a quiet life and murder till my heart's content. Yeah. Also collect my fucking toenails. Yeah, that was a weird yeah. thing. What about you, Matt? Where did you rank... Kira. I rank him as my second place, just underneath Dio. Yep, so yours now goes Dio, Kira, Cars, and then Dio Brando from Arc 1. Yes, because uh, Kira is a very unsettling villain. Oh, definitely. Uh, I am close to you, but uh, slightly different in that I go uh, Dio Brando then Kara's, then Kira, because Kira definitely is powerful and a compelling villain, but the fact that he just kind of wants to have a quiet life to himself makes me feel like he's not a huge threat to the world as a whole. It's mostly just he's a threat to the people who want to fuck with him. Uh, and then his occasional... Yeah, his occasional... A to the people who want to with him and a threat to the people in the town in which he resides. Yeah, but if you don't live inside Morio, then you don't really ever have to consider Kira's existence in the slightest. Yeah. Which is why he just doesn't rank super high for me, but I do think he is more terrifying than Dio Brando. That's mm-hmm. fair. Uh now just to confirm, uh yours is Dio Cars Kira and then Dio Brando. Yes. Okay. Uh so mine, uh I have Kira ranked number one. And fair. I would even argue that, like, on a one-on-one situation, like, the characters of the story to it, I think Kira is a bigger threat to the Diamond is Unbreakable group than Dio was to the Stardust Crusaders group. And That's that, fair. Like, by pure power. Like, I think Kira does have the potential of actually defeating Dio if they went head-to-head themselves. Yeah, probably. Just due to Bites the Dust is so fucking rigged. <laughs> yeah, if he used Dites the Bust a little bit better, Dites he probably... Dites the Bust. Bites the Dust. If he used Bites the Dust a little bit better, he easily would have won that entire throwdown. I mean, in one of those loops, he actually killed pretty much all of them. Yeah, if he knew everyone was dead, he could have just, like... You know, took Hayato off to the side. It's like, you're going to stand here until we kill everybody. Yeah. The only reason he didn't win is because he didn't know. He knew that Hayato did about three to four loops, but he didn't know who he killed. Yeah. Uh, but And uh, then and then the loop was broken before he could figure out by yeah. just the people dying because of fate's dictation. Exactly. Yeah. And... On top of that, I think out of all the villains so far, Kira is just the villain I wanted more of. Like, he was so interesting and unnerving. It's like, I just want to see more of this man doing things. I can respect that. Yeah, so mine is Kira, Dio, Dio Brando, and then Cars. Just Cars never clicked with me. He was never interesting. 
That's fair. Cars was perhaps the least like compelling villain, but he was the villain who I could very easily see taking over the world if he had a little bit more time before his fucking running with run in with Joseph. That's fair. So, he was like an ancient evil force. Yeah. Yeah. I I do think one on one matchups, if you were just to have the villains fight each other. I do think your ranking is probably the way it would go down, except I do think Cars would beat Dio Brando. Oh, definitely. Uh, I, don't, I don't think Dio Brando wins most of these fights, but I yeah. found him more interesting than Cars. That's fair. Uh, it's the uh, I throw but, away my humanity JoJo uh, was just such a great scene alone. Yes. Um, yeah, it's just none of us are ranking specifically on who's the most powerful in a one-on-one fight. We all have our different reasons for why we're ranking the villains the way we are. Yeah. Mine's just the right way to rank them, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, and then the plot as a whole. So, yeah. so the arcs uh, we have: Phantom Blood, Battle Tendencies, Stardust Crusaders, and now Diamond is Unbreakable. Yeah. Um. So, I believe when I was talking about this after we had talked about uh, Stardust Crusaders, I was a little bit critical of Stardust Crusaders because it felt very Monster of the Weeky. Uh, in that, like, it was just, they find a stand user, they fight the stand user, next episode they're somewhere else and they're fighting a different stand user that they happen to run into. Um, this one had a similar situation going on, but the fact that it was all kind of interconnected in the same town and the fact that we were doing a lot of world building gave it a bit of a bump for me, so I still kind of prefer Battle Tendencies and Phantom Blood, but this one came above Stardust Crusaders uh, in terms of plot for me. That's fair. And I, I think the big difference there is that with Stardust Crusaders, where the party was didn't seem to be important at all. Like, it was completely forgettable. They could have been anywhere, and it would have been the same. But um, uh, Diamond is Unbreakable. It feels like the world's a lot more built up to, like, everything seems recognizable and different. Yeah. So that means Diamond Unbreakable is now your third choice after Battle Tendencies, Phantom Blood, and then Stardust and Last? Yeah. Uh, me, I put Diamond is Unbreakable as my number one. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned it a lot uh, throughout uh, our episodes here, but I've been very clear to you guys that I am a big fan of Diamond is Unbreakable. You have. Yeah, and then Battle Tendencies very is my number true. two, with Stardust taking up third, and then Phantom Blood, unfortunately, with being so short and straight to the point, is my last one. Yeah. Yeah. I've. I do believe I had Stardust Crusaders as my one, correct? Uh, you have Battle Tendencies listed as your number one. Oh, right. Battle Tendencies one. But you can change it up if you want. This can change completely if you rethink about things. Uh... Actually, now that I think about it, the reason I had uh, Phantom Blood ranked so highly was because of all the world building it did and the fact that this one does just as much world building with regards to stands instead of just the Joestar family. I'm moving Diamond is Unbreakable above Phantom Blood for okay. the arc. So it becomes number two, and then Battle, uh, sorry, Blood, uh, Phantom Blood is going to be your number three. Yep, yeah, and Battle Tendencies is still my first. That's right. Yeah, Battle Tendencies is still my first, and uh, Diamond's Unbreakable is my second now. So that, that means your Battle Tendencies, Diamond is Unbreakable, Stardust Crusaders, and then Phantom Blood. So that means yeah. we've all have, uh, except for Peter, that is, have Phantom Blood down to the bottom. Yeah. I just feel like Phantom Blood did a bit too much world building on the Joseph family to give it, or the Joestar family to give it that swift of a kick to the nerds. That's fair. 
yeah, it's Stardust Crusaders has a lot of good moments, but the big problem with Phantom Blood is like it just doesn't have a lot of memory. Like it does do the world building for the family, but just it unfortunately it is the first one and it just doesn't have the benefits that the rest had. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's the main reason I give it bonus points in the fucking plot department is just because of the fact that other things get to be good because of the fact that they don't have to do any of the establishing that Phantom Blood is. So anytime I'm happy with another season, I have to give bonus points back to Phantom Blood because of the fact that if it had to reestablish everything, then it wouldn't be as good. That makes sense. At least in my mind. Yep. And I have Diamond is Unbreakable above uh, Stardust Crusaders because, well, despite the fact that I liked the more I guess, coherent, full, overarching story that Stardust Crusaders had. It was, as you mentioned, just point-to-point, Monster of the Week very oriented. The characters themselves didn't get all of that much growth, whereas Diamond is Unbreakable, we had a lot of world-building, a lot of character growth, and plenty of diverse characters in the cast. Yeah, and I think most people would come out the same way where Diamond is a Breakable, regardless of the rest of the list, will always be higher than Stardust, or just Diamond is a Breakable does Stardust Crusaders so much better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it only took us a year, but we finally got to Diamond is a Breakable complete. All right, so I'm assuming we'll get back together 2022 uh, for uh, Maybe the next arc. Yeah, so the next arc is Golden Wind, and I am Golden very curious Wind. to see what your guys' opinions on this. Uh, the the f- uh, familiar JoJo song you hear with the memes is what's get introduced in the next one. Yep, and uh, I don't, I've been dreading this season the most, oh. mainly because of how bizarre the characters look. Uh, yeah. Golden Wind, you mean? Yep. Yeah, yeah it, it has some very the silly costumes, characters. The clothes that they're all wearing so outlandish. Oh, uh, to be fair, this is also the one that has so many, like, yes, there's a lot of internet memes for JoJo in general. I feel like half of them are from fucking Golden Wind because of how ridiculous the characters look. To be fair, this is just Baraki getting more powerful with character design. You're not, you're not, you're yeah, not even pretty, into uh, it yet. Him developing as an artist. More powerful, he says. Yep. Yeah, yeah uh, Golden Wind, and who knows, maybe if we're lucky. Uh, Stone Ocean will be fully animated by the time we get to it. Maybe. By the time we finish, uh, uh, or by the time we do an episode on Golden Wind, maybe Stone Ocean will be ready for us. Yeah. At this rate, it's entirely possible. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. 